Well, hello, hello, and welcome to the iFormerX podcast. This is Stuart Haynes, the editor-in-chief of iFormerX and, and the host of the podcast. Thanks for listening. And if you find this podcast helpful, do us a favor. Please be sure to like, rate, and share this podcast. We rely on word of mouth to reach our audience. And if you're not already a member of the iFormerX community, I encourage you to sign up today. It's free for health professionals. And you can join iFormerX by visiting our website at iFormerX.org. And you'll receive our bi-monthly email alerts when new content is posted. In today's episode, I get to talk to Dr. Jennifer Clements and Dr. Sita Haynes about weight management. One of our most popular features on the iFormerX website is our top 10 things every clinician should know commentaries, which succinctly summarize, well, 10 things every clinician should know about a specific disease state or therapeutic approach. As all of our listeners are aware, Obesity is not only a major contributor to the development of many chronic diseases, but it also negatively impacts health outcomes for acute illnesses too. However, achieving and maintaining a healthy weight is very challenging for many of our patients, and indeed, not just our patients, but for many health professionals too. Dr. Clements is Professor and Director of Pharmacy Education on the Greenville campus for the University of South Carolina College of Pharmacy, and she's a member of our iFormerX editorial board. Jennifer has cared for patients with diabetes in both primary care and acute care settings for many years, and helping patients manage their weight has been a cornerstone of her practice. And our second guest today is Dr. Sina Haynes, who is professor and director of well-being and belonging at the University of Mississippi School of Pharmacy, here in Jackson, Mississippi. Sina is a certified health and wellness coach, and her undergraduate degree before returning to school to get her PharmD was in dietetics and nutrition. Sina works with clients longitudinally to help them meet their health and wellness goals, which in most cases includes losing weight. Both of our guests today have contributed to iFormerX in several ways over the past decade, so it's great to have them both back on the iFormerX podcast. Jennifer, Sina, welcome. Thank you for having me back, Stuart. Hey, everyone. It's great to be back with the iForum community. Happy to be here. So, Sina, I'd like to start with you by talking about the extent of the problem and the adverse consequences of being obese or overweight. I understand that obesity is not only a problem in developed countries like the United States and Canada, but it's a worldwide problem. So let's set the stage by talking about how common the problem is, who's at greatest risk, and what the consequences are. Stuart, you indeed are correct. According to the World Health Organization, 650 million adults, that's roughly one in five women or one in seven men, 340 million adolescents are obese, And 39 million children, that's those under the age of five, are overweight or obese. And the greatest number of people living with obesity are in our low to middle income countries, with the numbers that have more than doubled across low to middle income countries and tripled in the very low income. 
While domestically, states like West Virginia, Kentucky, and Alabama are amongst our higher states with high rates, especially in our Black and Hispanic Latino adults, I think globally, regions of the world have seen some alarmingly high rates of obesity in the past five years. South Pacific is one example. It is a leading cause of preventable death with known effects of the heart, liver, kidneys, joints, and the reproductive system. But it also can lead to various forms of cancer and as well as some mental health issues. And perhaps surprisingly, 30% of our younger population is now too heavy to qualify for military service. I think another interesting aspect that many of listeners know with regard to the recent COVID-19 pandemic, the outcomes were worse in obese patients. Obesity is estimated to cost the U.S. in spending roughly $170 billion annually. And finally, I would say in terms of social and economic factors, the key drivers resulting in these higher rates I've described, if we think about structural racism, discrimination and stigma, poverty, but also food insecurity, housing instability, and of course, access to quality health care. Well, in the commentary, Jennifer, you talk about a standardized approach to managing patients who are overweight or obese. Can you describe the systematic approach that you recommend? And how should I approach each patient encounter with weight management as a specific goal? When I look at or think about a standardized approach, I think there are a couple of ways where we can be consistent in assisting people who are overweight or have obesity. First, the pharmacist-patient care process. So as an example, this process can be helpful to collect a thorough medical and social history from a person who is overweight or living with obesity. And diving further, we could review objective information such as waist circumference, or body mass index, and assess the individual's classification of obesity. When thinking about the person in front of us, we would develop a plan, perhaps with an anti-obesity medication, implement the plan through shared decision-making, and follow up on parameters related to efficacy and safety, maybe after four weeks with the medication, depending on which one it is. Another way or tool to implement a consistent approach in practice would be the five A's of weight management. This particular method has been studied and it is advertised on websites such as Obesity Canada. These steps include asking for permission to discuss weight and exploring readiness assessing obesity-related risks and root causes of obesity, advising on health risks and treatment options, agreeing on health outcomes and behavioral goals, and lastly, assisting in accessing appropriate resources and providers. While giving these two examples and approaches It may seem more like a to-do list when assisting an individual with weight loss and helping them achieve their goals. So I think our mindset really needs to be an approach that's consistent, 
but one with the patient so that we are definitely focusing on that person and implementing shared decision-making to develop, implement, and follow up on that person-centered plan. Well, Sina, while surgery and drug therapy can play a role, behavior change and lifestyle modification are the cornerstones of weight management. And most clinicians don't have the kind of time that you have, Sina, to meet with patients for 30 minutes or an hour once a week for three to six months to help patients develop the lifelong habits needed to achieve and maintain a healthy weight. But I'm wondering what are some of the key tactics that you use in your practice as a coach that could be used during brief encounters with patients? And when should a clinician consider getting a health and wellness coach involved? I think pharmacists are uniquely positioned to help explore a patient's readiness or capability for behavior change. And so thinking about both the physical aspect, when I think about capability as well as their psychological for behavior change, opportunities, checking in on social connection, again, psychological readiness, and their motivation for behavior change to guide patients away from attempting a radical change and help them introduce one small change at a time. So if you're aiming to help a patient, let's say, come back on a sugared beverage intake, so for sodas, for example, something we all can easily fall into as a habit, try to simply advise them to reduce consumption to one a day. So small but mighty changes can really add up. I will say that many pharmacists are trained in motivational interviewing, and MI is a client-centered approach, which helps us lead individuals in behavior change by exploring and resolving their ambivalence. And the spirit, you know, certainly draws on compassion, acceptance, drawing out the client's goals, values, and how you can collaborate with them. So it helps us explore a patient's mindset regarding change. And that's something many pharmacists, again, have been trained to do. It does take the tincture of time. And this is where that can really bridge nicely into coaching. And Coaching psychology, in part, is the relational vehicle for implementing positive psychology. This field focused on the scientific study of happiness and well-being. And as a board-certified health and wellness coach, I work with individuals to identify their strengths and plan specific changes to improve overall satisfaction with their life. And this is personal and professional so that they're living well in a conscious and more mindful way with an alliance of support and accountability to help them with aspects around breaking through some limiting beliefs, gaining some new ideas and insights, harnessing their strengths to overcome obstacles, and helping to inspire and challenge them to go beyond what they could do alone. It really is about implementing a personal behavior change plan I like to call a well-being blueprint. Last thing I would say here, although I do practice some anxiety reducing and centering techniques that some may know about, like cognitive behavioral therapy or CBT, as well as acceptance commitment therapy or ACT, I want to say that well-being coaches do not include formal psychological assessments, medical therapy, or any medical care. So in the commentary, Sina, you talk about wearables for weight management. What are these tools, and is there any evidence that they really help? 
So it's pretty amazing. There have been over, I, I think, like 100 million or more wearables sold since like 2016, which is kind of crazy when you think about it. And the most common are fitness trackers and activity monitoring trackers, common ones like Fitbit, Apple Watch, Garmin. There's so many. And they can really help promote physical activity, but also help individuals monitor their food consumption. And they encourage like inter-user community support. So maybe just to expand a little bit on this, the wearable technology uses a sensor. It's automatically set to track our physical activity-related goals. So things like what calories we might burn or our step counts are very common. Dietary patterns, but really other health-related behaviors can also be tracked like sleep or sleep hygiene. And folks are able to kind of upload some health statistics to the internet and also some of these just mobile-based apps that help promote that self-evaluation piece or the self-monitoring, self-reinforcement, goal-setting via this metric tracking. And like I said, it does also facilitate social support among a network of other connected users. Now, I will say that systematic reviews and meta-analyses have observed that these wearables can be effective for increasing our physical activity in patients with cardiovascular disease, and it can lower body weight and BMI, but it is unclear whether it's really effective to lower body weight and BMI in patients who are overweight or obese. And this is because the technologies rely on tracking activity biomarkers. So we think about our heart rate, our blood oxygenation, through the body-worn sensor process. And many of these sensors are optical in nature, so their functionality depends on the interaction of light and the layers of our skin. It introduces this question of accuracy of physical activity when we're looking at patients who are overweight or are obese because of the skin layers and the size of the body habitus. But also color of skin matters too. It's a little bit more difficult to assess in darker skin. And to me, this highlights the need for better inclusion of diverse populations in our evaluative studies. Last thing I'd say here is to keep in mind, not all patients can afford them. So that's another consideration in terms of utility as well. So Jennifer, I'd like to talk about drug therapy. Clearly, medications have a potential role particularly in those who are morbidly obese and in those who have diabetes or cardiovascular disease. In the commentary, you mentioned two drugs very specifically, semaglutide and terazepatide. So what's so special about these agents and who would be a good candidate to receive them? Yeah, I think when we look at anti-obesity medication, we know that they are a valuable addition to lifestyle interventions, especially among those that have not achieved their weight loss or it's been difficult to even maintain a weight loss after lifestyle interventions. The reason semaglutide and trisepatide are now kind of the new kids on the block and everybody is talking about them is really because we have that joint consensus report now from the American Diabetes Association, and the European Association for the Study of Diabetes, showing a new algorithm and really focusing on A1C reduction and weight loss. 
So this new algorithm has kind of pushed these two new medications to the top of having a high efficacy in lowering A1C and promoting weight loss. You can also refer to that algorithm in the newly published 2023 Standards of Medical Care for Diabetes. So while I'm not going to go into great detail about the evidence behind each of these, I did just want to mention some key things about semaglutide and trisepatide individually. With semaglutide at 2.4 milligrams as a subcutaneous injection weekly, it does have that indication for obesity or weight loss. And this has really come out from several clinical trials known as the STEP trials. And if you look at each individual one, you'll see the great reduction with this medication. For example, it led to an average weight loss of about 15% to 17.5%. And these individuals did not have type 2 diabetes at baseline. And this was seen from baseline to week 68. Now, while it is a GLP-1 receptor agonist, gastrointestinal adverse events were common and seen when the dose was titrated up, blood pressure improved, lipids improved, and participants in the trials had indicated an improved or better quality of life. Now, turning to trisepatide, it is the first dual receptor agonist for GIP and GLP-1. In the United States, it is currently only indicated for the treatment of type 2 diabetes. So when looking at the clinical trials in that patient population, the doses of 5 to 15 milligrams per week of trisepatide not only improved A1C, but reduced body weight up to 26 pounds, which is huge when you think about a single drug leading to that type of effect on weight. If you particularly look at a trial focused on weight management and weight loss, that was the Surmount 1 trial. And again, you could see the dose-dependent weight loss going from 5 to 10 to 15 milligrams per week of trisepatide. 5 milligram weekly dose led to a 15% weight loss from baseline to week 72. The 10 milligram dose had a 19.5% weight loss. And then the 15 milligram had a 20.9%. And these, again, are huge numbers. But I think what was more impressive is to see the percent of participants who lost 10, 15, and 20% weight loss, which is exceeding what clinical practice guidelines recommend. And normally, we want to try to get to five, but we're talking 15 to 20 and even above that for some individuals. Now, similar to semaglutide, it improved cardiometabolic measures. Now, with trisepatide, it is on the fast track designation with the FDA and could be approved maybe in 2023 for obesity. But both are expensive options. And so coverage is going to be very important 
putting in the appropriate code for billing. But payers really need to get on board with these medications. But obviously, a lot of patients may need it, especially if they have other comorbid conditions. There are a couple other drugs to mention that may come out. High-dose duaglutide will have some evidence. But look for a triagonist, one that is triple therapy as a GIP, GLP-1, and glucagon agonist that is currently entering phase three trials. And so I think we'll see more with drug therapy in the future. Well, lastly, Jennifer, I'd like to talk about bariatric surgery and the management of patients following surgery. In the commentary, you talk about how pharmacists can play an important role before and after surgery. So what are some of the ways that pharmacists contribute to the care of these patients? And what specifically should clinicians be looking out for after surgery? First, I just want to mention with bariatric surgery, clinical practice guidelines will have that criteria. In terms of who may be a candidate for a referral to a bariatric clinic or physician to be evaluated and assessed. As an example, the American Diabetes Association states that an individual that has type 2 diabetes and has a BMI equal to or above 40 should be considered a candidate and be referred. Now, of course, when we're talking about surgery, there are risks and there are benefits. And so we have to really assess the individual. And I think that's where pharmacists can have a greater role prior to surgery, but after really de-prescribing medications, stopping the sephoniorrhea, reducing insulin therapy. Pharmacists can provide guidance on nutritional supplementation with over-the-counter products, manage other comorbid conditions such as hypertension and hyperlipidemia, as well as provide further counseling on prenatal care or contraception, as well as any type of psychiatric disorder with making recommendations, again, and appropriate dosing. For me, I've always turned to certain review articles or clinical guidance documents to help me. One published in Obesity Surgery in 2019 that was a practical guideline for nutrition, physical activity, and prescription of supplements and the pre- and post-bariatric surgery patient, but also the American Association of Clinical Endocrinology, who has published several documents as guidance with other organizations for bariatric surgery. Well, Sina, Jennifer, many, many thanks for being on the iFormerX podcast today and for writing the commentary, 10 Things Every Clinician Should Know About Weight Management. Well, tell us what you do in your practice. What are some tips and tricks you'd like to share? Remember, only iFormerX members can leave comments and use the interactive features on our website, so be sure to sign in every time you visit. And be sure to check out the American Pharmacists Association's Evidence-Based Practice Literature Evaluation Series. If you are a board-certified ambulatory care pharmacist, you can earn recertification and continuing education credit for listening to this podcast and reading the written commentary. To learn more, just click on the link posted below the written commentary posted on the iFormerX website. And lastly, I'd like to thank Amanda Shardle 
a clinical pharmacy specialist and population health pharmacist with the Care Vivo division of Christiana Care, which is based in Delaware. Amanda has contributed to iFormerX in numerous ways over the past eight years, including authoring commentaries, peer-reviewing commentaries, and participating in podcasts. And whenever I ask Amanda to contribute, she always says yes, despite her busy schedule and practice. And every time I learn something new from Amanda. So thank you, Amanda, for your contributions to iFormerX and for all that you do to take the best care of patients. Well, until next time, this is Stuart Haynes, editor in chief of iFormerX, signing off. Mm-hmm.